I'm glad to be here, and this is this is going to be an interesting class. It's a fun class. I have never heard anybody even do a sermon on this type of in this material, so this is going to be different. And uh, this is original. I can't I can't borrow and steal anybody's notes or anybody's structure. So it made me have to think, Pastor. So I should have volunteered for the other class. <laughs> no. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started, and uh, then we'll get into the study. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the privilege we have of studying your word. We're thankful for the fact that we can take it as what it says. We can take it as the truth because it is the truth. And we know that there isn't another book written any place on the planet that can make a boast that it's always right on everything it says. But this book is. And we're so thankful, Father, that we are not following cunningly devised fables, as Peter said in one of his epistles, but we're following the truth from God. And so as we look into these things, Father, may they be encouraging to us and may they help us to understand more fully what we have in salvation, what we have in evangelism, what we can do, what was done in the past. And by seeing the difference, we will appreciate a lot more what we have, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. And I, as a Bible teacher over the over many years now, I've tried to go into areas where other men weren't teaching, and, and men from our background typically like to teach the Christian life for good reason. It's the most important area of Scripture to know. But in the process, I've always felt that they were neglecting things in the Old Testament that might be of value. And my conclusion has been and still is, is that what we see in the Old Testament has an effect on how we live. If for nothing else, it produces gratitude. If you have any question about it, read through parts of Leviticus where it talks about the animal sacrifices and, and the one is so oh the one that is so such a blessing is when you read through about leprosy and all the requirements on leprosy in a house. Did you know a house could be leprous? You read all that and you look and say, Oh boy, animal sacrifices, all the money it costs, all the animals if, if that alone will make you very happy. I like the fact that I can confess my sin and be forgiven. How about you? You like that better? Or would you rather have to buy a lamb and take it in and have it butchered? And then smell it getting burned up. Nah. Just think what your neighbors would say. Now, there goes Brother Don again. He's got three of them. He, was on a, he must have been acting up this well. Well, levity aside, uh, biblical evangelism is a course in how God reaches the lost. And by way of introduction, the Great Awakening in America, now it wasn't just in America, but in America in particular, it involved a widespread number of revivals from the 18th up into the 20th century. And as a result... I put Bible-preaching, Bible-believing churches, and you can almost say every one of them. I, I didn't say most. I just said Bible-believing churches because it virtually looks like almost all of them. There might have been some here and there, like little churches like ours, but the big mainline, quote-unquote, the church, it followed this rule. So as a result, the Bible-believing churches in America have shifted their emphasis from educating the flock and the Christian life to almost exclusively evangelism. And it is really, it is not unusual to hear from the pulpits of many churches that the primary responsibility of the Christian is to carry out the Great Commission. And here we should note, it also involves the carrying out of the Great Commission. They've even gone further and gone into what we call social gospel, of saying there was a group that started some 40 years ago that said, hungry stomachs have no ears. And they used that as an excuse to go out and feed them and do all these other things and I, and I think, as I look at some of the literature, I saw, yeah, I see about feeding them, and I see about this, but where is 1 Corinthians 15 in all this? 
You know, I didn't see it. I never saw it. So now the responsibility of the Christian is supposedly carrying out the Great Commission. Not surprisingly, many believers are made to feel guilty if they're not actively evangelizing everyone that they know. And it reflects a basic misunderstanding of what evangelism is and what, it, what its place in the church should be. Now, please, before we go any further, we are not talking about not evangelizing. We're not excusing people. We're not saying uh, that it's okay not to. But we are saying that there is this basic misunderstanding that is used to make people feel guilty. That's what we're looking at. We're not looking at the fact that we can evangelize and we can witness, and we'll get into that later. We're looking at the fact that there's an excess. And the way to solve a problem is not to go from one extreme to the other, but to find the middle ground where the sanity exists, because there is a place for this. So, biblical evangelism. This is right out of the course description. It's a study of evangelism throughout Scripture. The study includes the consideration of how God reached the lost in the Old Testament, the Gospels, the dispensation of grace, and the tribulation period. And all of that in 10 weeks, by the way. 10, 11, 12 weeks. So we're going to have to hustle through some of this. But it says, a contrast of the class will consider the gift of evangelism given to the church in this dispensation. A contrast will be made between the gift of evangelism versus a method which average believers are used to reach the lost. And that is going to be important. If we only get one thing through this 12 weeks, if we get a clear understanding of the fact that there is something different for all of us to do, where we do have something of a responsibility. But it's not the same as evangelism. When we get to the New Testament, you're going to see an evangelist wasn't just every single believer. That's why it's called a spiritual gift. That's why it's given to some individuals, but not every one of them. So, now, uh, for some reason, my, my proofreader, who's getting so old he forgets, that word by, you can cross that off. It make the statement, that's the quickest way to correct it. So it's understanding what Scripture teaches about evangelism should put, the, put to rest the notion that every believer is guilty before God if they're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Again, I say, we are not saying that we as believers are free and we have no obligation to be a witness or testimony. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we are not obligated to carry out the Great Commission as missionaries because if everybody has to go, if everybody goes, who's going to stay here and pay the bills to send them? Really? Anybody ever think about that? I heard, I heard so many times, it was go, they wanted everybody to go. And so Dr. Schaefer one time said to us, if everybody goes, who's going to stay behind and pay the bills? Good question, good point, you know. And that's the truth. So, some guidelines for this study. And uh, I think from time to time it's important to remind it and... Uh, so we put it in our notes here, and it's true, and I'm sure everybody that ever teaches up here will say the same thing. But every, every class, every course that is taught at Grace Bible Institute is built upon the firm conviction, not just the conviction, but the firm conviction, is that the Bible is God-breathed, inerrant, infallible Word of God, which must be interpreted literally. Please note that. It must be interpreted. Why is it that everything we read, we take literally? If you go to work and you get an email from your boss and they say that there's a meeting on Thursday at 4 o'clock, you don't say, hmm, oh, well, he probably means next Wednesday at 2 in the afternoon. <laughs> you don't do that. But you know, when some people come to the Bible, they do that. There, there is one commentary that, that, makes a, that refers to a verse of Scripture where it says, a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, a new covenant I make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
in this commentary, you know what it says? The Christian dispensation. So I did this. I said, it just, how do you do that? How do you take a word in the house of Israel and the house of Judah and that's the church? Somebody needs to learn how to read English. So we believe that you take it literally. Now, a consistent literal interpretation, point number two, of God's word will result in a dispensational approach to Scripture which undergirds every class offered by Grace Bible Institute. Now, you'll notice I said a dispensational approach. I did not say dispensational interpretation. We do not, dis- we do not interpret anything dispensationally. We interpret it literally. Or if you say you interpret it literally, you also can say you have a dispensational approach because if you're literal, you will approach the Bible from a dispensational perspective because you will see the differences that are there. Now, point number three, a dispensational approach to Scripture will show the distinctions God has established between Israel and the church. And that's going to be the big one when it comes to evangelism, almost every area of doctrine. If people see the difference between law and grace, the battle's won because very few people go back and look at the conscience of innocence, and say, well, we should do what they did. How could we ever? We're not innocent any longer. So if we can understand the difference, and you notice I said, at no time will we allegorize the Old Testament to equate Old Testament salvation with New Testament salvation. And let me pause there and just say that there are men who should know better, men who are professed dispensationalists who will go back in the Old Testament and somehow they still believe that the Old Testament saint had the same thing we do, so they have to, you have to allegorize, you have to make it, well, it doesn't really mean what it says, it means this. Well, if you're going to do that, you might as well go into politics. <laughs> that's where you'd really, be, that's where people would be at home if they do that. So at no time are we going to do that through this study, because the New Testament will not allow us. Scripture will not. And you notice it in notes, I have it printed out. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 will not allow that. And it reads, and, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. Now notice, I highlighted it. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should, should not be made perfect. Who is the they? The they without us. The us is the believe is going to be the church. Who is the they? Well, you know, back in the 11th chapter, you have what they call the hall of faith. And it is believers in the Old Testament under law, and even before, and showing the acts of faith that they had. It's showing the acts of faith. And all of them put together, which would include Moses, he's in there a number of times, it says, we have something better. Now, better can never be the same. I, I always like the illustration I've heard. You go into a steak restaurant with a good friend, and, and you order two steaks, and one of them comes out and looks all grisly and fatty, and it just doesn't look very good. And the other steak... Is flawless. It's beautiful. It has just a little fat on the end you can trim, and it's just a little bit marbling. And then you say they're the same. Well, they're the same. Well, if they are the same, I'll take the good one, and I'll give you the fatty steak. How does that sound? <laughs> they're not. I mean, it's, it's not the same. And for example, uh, well, let's take a moment. Look over at 1 John chapter 5. We have something better. Now, this is said to us, but you won't find this in the Old Testament. In 1 John chapter 5, these are, these are verses that I hope you, uh, you know by heart because this is a very important, a very important section here. And uh, John wrote such simple Greek, but he wrote such complex theology. It's very interesting to note that, that his Greek was simple, but his theology was deep. But if you look at 1 John chapter 5, oh, I was looking at 4, okay, chapter 5, 
This is the record that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Now you notice it says God has given us eternal life. Who is that? It is believers. It is believers in the dispensation of grace. And he that hath the life, he that hath the Son hath the life. There is a definite article there. And he that hath not the Son hath not the life. So we have eternal life. When do we have it? Right now. If you believe, if I believe, we have the indwelling Christ and we have eternal life. Now, if it's the same thing as the Old Testament, then I want you to look at Daniel chapter 12. This is just one illustration. And you can use this to show if you have a friend, a neighbor, another believer who doesn't understand this, you could just show him. This is another place where you show them just two verses or two short passages, and they can see there's a difference that you cannot allegorize away. Daniel chapter 12. And really, all we need to read is the first two verses. At that time... Michael shall stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation unto the same time. Now that we know is the time of Jacob's trouble, or what we call the tribulation, including the great tribulation. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, and every one shall be found, and every one that shall be found written in the book, written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting, now really it's a Hebrew word, it could be translated eternal. Some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. When is the Old Testament believer going to get eternal life? Did they have it while they walked on earth? No. They are not going to get it until they are resurrected, Old Testament believers, and they go into the Millennial Kingdom. They did not have it. Now another place you can show people, and we've used this one before, but just remember Numbers chapter 11. You can show the difference there. We might, as well, we might as well read it since we mentioned it. But this is one where you can show people, and I don't think there's any way that, that a sane person can say, well, we have the same thing after reading this. You can't. It, it, would be, it would just be insanity to say it. Numbers chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. Now, in the context, all the way back to the 16th verse, God told Moses to get 70 men who were elders, who were mature people, who were leaders, and to bring them, and he would do, some, he would, he would do something special. And so, well, let's start beginning at verse 24. And the Lord went out and told the people, all the, and Moses went out and told, all the, told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and he spake to them, and he took of the Spirit, which was, notice, was it in him? It was upon him. There's a major difference right there you can show people. It is no doubt about it. It's upon. It doesn't mean in. It's very clear. It was upon him and gave it to the 70 elders. And it came to, and it came to pass that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied it did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but they went not unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there, and, and there ran a young man and told Moses, and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. Now look at what, look at what Moses says. This is, this is extremely important. You can show people this, and there's no question. You, you can't argue with this. This is God's word. 
Verse 29, And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. They did not all have the Holy Spirit upon them. Only a very select few ever did. Now, how, pray tell, do you match that up with the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us? You look at Ephesians, you can't miss it. He indwells us into the day of redemption. He's here. He's not going to leave. So, if we take this book literally, better is never the same. Better is never the same. Just remember that when you go in a restaurant, you know, husbands with your wives, make sure, make sure you're smart and give her the better one. <laughs> it works better that way. Now, point number four. This is important. There's a guideline for the study. From God's perspective, salvation throughout the Word of God is always only by grace, through faith, and based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Now notice, that's the basis. While the basis never changes, a consistent, literal approach to the Scripture will reveal that the message presented to the lost does. And that will become evident throughout the study. And so, because of that, we're not going to have to focus on the basis, the finished work of Christ, the Gospel of 1 Corinthians 15, because Courtney's going to cover that. And these classes, actually, I was sitting there thinking, Courtney's coming awful close to teaching my class. I thought maybe I should hand him my notes and let him do it because he'd do better than I would. Save me all the time and effort since my name wasn't in there, Pastor. (laughs) He's not going to hear the end of that. We'll pick on him about that for a while. But So we're not going to be looking at the basis. Please remember, at no time are we questioning that the basis of salvation from God's point of view is always and only, no matter where you go, is based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's the basis. But the message that is presented can be different, and we're going to see it. Now, as in, this, in this study, we're going to use evangelism to mean, and this is my definition, proclaiming a God-given message to bring individuals to salvation. As noted at point four, any message that God gave to a service in the Old Testament is based upon the finished work of Christ expressed in the Gospel of 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. So, having said that, before we really get into it, all of this introduction is necessary, I think, to, to really paint the picture that there are some challenges for this study. The first challenge is that only the New Testament uses the words evangelism, evangelist, or gospel. Now, that's a real problem. These words are not found in the Old Testament, the Gospels, or any of the prophetic passages concerning the Tribulation. So how in the world can you study a subject that is only named in the New Testament epistles? Well, while we do not find evangelism, evangelists, or gospel in the other areas, we do find the activities involved in evangelism. And the answer lies in remembering our definition of evangelism as proclaiming a God-given message to bring individuals to salvation. It's not the name that matters. It is men proclaiming a God-given message that brings salvation by faith. And I think if we find that, no matter where we go in Scripture, we have seen evangelism. It's not going to be called that, but it's going to be that because if it's a God-given message, that's what it is. Now, the second, the second uh, problem we have, the second challenge, an even greater one is for us if we expect to find New Testament, clear-cut New Testament-style evangelism throughout Scripture. If we're going to look for what happened in the book of Acts, we're going to be disappointed. We really will. There is no day of Pentecost other places. There's no Great Commission, and there's no spider running across your notes. <laughs> and no, there's two of them. 
I must have picked a good time to be up front. And they see, and there's where did I leave off? There's no evangel, there's no gift of evangelist. Now, the greatest challenge of all, however, is to find evangelism where spiders don't keep coming back. I got them that time. <laughs> the greatest. Okay, we'll try that again. The greatest challenge to finding evangelism anywhere in Scripture is that most believers expect a uniform message of salvation, like the gospel. There was a uniform message in, in the uh, Gospels for how people get saved. We'll see that and during Christ's earthly ministry. And there will be a uniform message in the tribulation. And there certainly is a uniform message today. Believe me, there certainly is. It is only the, New, the Old Testament that lacks a single unchanging message for salvation. Now remember, we said message, not basis. The basis is going to go right back. And we keep saying that because... I can see people could take this and say, oh, you're saying there's more than one way of salvation. No, we're not. There's only one way of salvation from God's point of view. But see, that's the problem. From God's point of view, it's based on the work of Christ. But from man's point of view, it can be based on something else. And God doesn't have a problem with that. Because God knows all things. And it wasn't, but in in God's reckoning of time, a thousand years is like a watch in the night to God. A thousand years, that's out of Psalm 90. I've always loved Psalm 90. By the way... Anybody, you get to, anybody that knows who wrote that gets 10 points. Who wrote Psalm 90, by the way? There's a quick quiz. Does anybody know who wrote Psalm 90? Moses. Check me out on that. But he did say a thousand years is like a watch in the night. Now, if God can see a thousand years like a watch in the night, in the Old Testament, for him to look forward and say, yes, I'm basing this on the work of Christ, it's a couple minutes. A couple minutes to God. Maybe a half an hour or something like that. No big deal to God. Now, you'll notice we put a section in here, and it's, it's a safeguard. Today, regardless of the circumstances surrounding its presentation, the only message that brings salvation is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. There is no other way for anyone to be saved today but by believing the facts of the gospel. Now, you'll notice, but while parts of the gospel of 1 Corinthians 15 can be found in the Old Testament... They are never connecting into a single coherent message. But God can use some other messages to bring people to salvation, and we'll find that he did. But again, we repeat, there's only one gospel of salvation today, and that's 1 Corinthians 15. And as long as we keep that in mind, because if you say it's some of this to other people, they're immediately going to jump and they're going to see there's more than one way of salvation. No, there isn't more than one way. There's only one way as God sees it. But the message we present is the same. We actually live in an interesting time because the means, the salvation, the basis, and the message are identical. That's the advantage we have. But that wasn't true in the Old Testament. So, let's start off in looking at evangelism in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament really does, and Pastor and I were talking, and he said the same thing in his studies as well, that you find the Old Testament really offers few details surrounding how individuals were saved. And by the way, it doesn't always tell you who was saved and who was not saved. There are some individuals that you can say, yes, they probably were. I think they were. And there's some that you know had to be. The prophets were saved individuals. Moses was saved. Aaron was saved. Miriam was saved. Joshua was saved. Caleb was saved. But the rest of the people of Israel coming up to the Kadesh Barnea and the spies that rejected the word of God, they all died. Were they saved individuals? Doesn't sound like any of them were. Were there possibly some in there that were, I don't know. So we really were, were kind of, 
it's tough to find individuals. So, but here's the bright side of the story. There is one man whose salvation is well documented in the Old Testament. Therefore, the study will focus on what that one man's salvation reveals about salvation in the Old Testament. And that man, of course, was Abram. Now, we say Abram because he's Abraham in the 17th chapter. It is a time of his salvation he was Abram. God changed his name from High Father to Father of a Multitude because God made him a personal covenant that he would have a multitude of kids. And he did. He did. After Sarah died, he, you look in Genesis 25, he married a lady called Keturah. And he had five or six, I forget now, five or six male heirs by her. So when God rejuvenated that man to have Isaac, boy, I guess he was, he was good to go for quite a few years because he had a whole bunch of sons. And he did become a father of nations. So, so Abraham is going to be our... Now, why is Abraham so important in understanding Old Testament salvation? Well, did you know that he's the only Old Testament believer that has a New Testament commentary on when he was saved? Did you realize that? Now, that's unusual. You may not have thought of it. It's not a revelation, but when you think of it in those terms, it's true. Look over at Romans chapter 4, because Paul's making a point. And in the book of Romans, one of the things that's very interesting in Romans is, you know, you have more uses of the law in the book in the book of Romans than you do throughout the rest of the New Testament. All the rest of the other all the rest of the epistles, right up to Revelation, have less than Romans, and the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, have less than Romans. It's it's remarkable. There's something about that. This is a book, my opinion, this is a book that's written as a commentary on the decision in Rome in Acts fifteen. When they said that the Gentiles shouldn't live by, didn't need to live by the law, but left the Jews doing it, and I think this is Paul's commentary later, as he thought about it, because he's written. Well, just take a moment, look at chapter seven, just for a moment. He's not writing to strictly to Gentiles here. This is what is interesting. It creates a problem for some when you look at it, but he says in Romans seven verse one, he says, "Know you not, brethren?" For I speak to them who know by experience the law. It's not just they know it. It's the word for know by experience. Now, nobody would know the law by experience unless, for, unless one thing. Unless they were Jewish, would they? So who's he talking to? A good part of this epistle is written to those who were Jews in the church at Rome. That changes this book entirely. When you see that, it'll really help you understand it. That's just that's a freebie. That's that's uh, no extra charge for that, Pastor. That's not in the notes, so you get it for free tonight. But the commentary, if you look at Romans chapter four, beginning at verse one, what shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before God. For what says the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that works. The reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. To him that works not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And it goes on from there. He's talking about when this man was saved. Now, you know, if, if you tell people that Abram was saved in, in, in the 15th chapter of Genesis, they'll, they'll look at you funny. I mean, they'll just be stunned. I taught this one time years ago at a church when I was teaching adult Sunday school. We were members there. And one person afterwards told me, I thought, oh boy, I'm going to hear it. They're going to use me. He said, you know, I never realized that. He said, that was something. What? That's what the scripture says. Isn't it amazing what you can learn if you read the scripture and pay attention to it? 
Maybe it's the fact that people don't read this book. Maybe they don't read English. I don't know what it is. But, so, this, we have a commentary. Now, the other thing about this that is so unique that you may not have thought of is Abraham is one of only two individuals who were quote-unquote evangelized by the second person of the Trinity. Did you realize that? There were only two individuals who were converted by the second person of the Godhead, the pre-incarnate Christ in one case, and the exalted, resurrected Christ in the other case, in Acts 9. So, if you look at, if you go back to Romans chapter, or to, uh, we'll go back to Genesis chapter 15. Now, if we need to, do we need to look at Acts chapter 9, or do you remember who it was that said, why are you persecuting me? I think most of us know, and for the sake of time, you see we have a reference there in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, but everybody, I hope, realizes that Jesus was the one saying, and it's, that's what it says, that you're kicking against the pricks, you're persecuting me. But in the 15th chapter oh, of Genesis, not Exodus, Donald, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield and your great reward, and your, and your exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God. Now you notice? It says in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, and Abraham says, Lord God. Who was it that came? It was deity, Lord God, full deity, but it was called the word. Now, you know what? If you remember what it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, in the beginning was who? Was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's talking about the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Son. It is He that appears here. Now, you might not have realized it. A lot of times I think when people say the word of the Lord, it's like He hears a voice in His ear. No, 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 no. That's not what happened at all. He did not hear a voice in His ear. He saw someone. Because, by the way, in the 18th chapter, He sees three men and He immediately picks one of them out and knows who it is. Why? Why would, how would He know that in the 18th chapter? Because He's seen Him already. Take a look at the 18th chapter sometime of Genesis, and you see three men come up, and Abram picks one of them out and talks to him as God. Now, how would he know who it was in humanoid form? He saw three men. It's because he saw him back here. So, and you'll notice, you can see it as we read down through here, and Abram says, verse 2, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me you've given no seed. One born of my house is my heir. And the word of the, and behold, the word of the Lord came in him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but, but he that shall come forth out of thy bowels shall be thy heir. Now notice, and he brought him abroad. He, who is he? The word of the Lord brought him, Abram, abroad. He brought him out of his tent. You see, Abraham kind of spouted off to the Lord. And I think he went back in his tent because he might have realized, maybe I should watch my mouth. And so... It's he, and really, this is one of those fun places where Hebrew is fun. He brought him forth. It's that one causative form I really get a kick out of. He caused him to come forth. In other words, the word of the Lord went in there. The pre-incarnate son went in and took him by the hand and brought him out. Whether he was ready to come out or not, he pulled him out of the tent. That's a person. He didn't hear a voice. It wasn't something mystical. There was a person in flesh right in front of him. It was the pre-incarnate son of God. That's who this was. 
And people don't realize that because they think they see the word of the Lord and they think it's, well, here's the word of the Lord, right? Right here, isn't this it? You know, well, no, he didn't hear somebody reading from the King James Version of the Bible. Even though it's the, no, I won't say that. I won't, I won't take a cheap shot like that. <laughs> but, and if you notice down a little bit further in verse 7, the word of the Lord speaks to him and says, I am the Lord who brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees. So he identifies himself as the Lord. Or you notice we have in parenthesis Jehovah. Now there's a problem that you have in the, in the, in the translation. When you see Lord in all caps, it's, it's what we call Jehovah. It's what, and if you see Lord in capital L in small letters, then it's the word that means Adonai or Master. And I think I have a footnote um, in here somewhere. I thought I did. That's, that explained the difference on them. Yeah, I, I, I do. It's, um, no, it's over on page four. Footnote number seven explains that. I stick a lot of footnotes in my stuff. And uh, it all started when I finally learned how to use, footnote, uh, use the footnotes in Word. And I had so much fun with it, I decided I'd use footnotes all the time. <laughs> but it allows you to put in things that maybe you won't cover. But you can see it there. You see it. I even gave you the, the Hebrew words, if you can read them down there. Yahweh and uh, Adon, or Adon or Adonai. And so the word Adon is Lord is more like the idea of master. And it's typically used of God in emphasizing him as being the master. Jehovah or Yahweh emphasizes the I am. I like when you go back to Exodus 3, when God introduces himself in the, in the burning bush to Moses, he said, I am that I am. I think it should be translated, I am because I am. I am. This is a form of, form of the verb to be I am. In other words, it emphasizes he's the self-existent one. God does not need anything to exist. He is sufficient within himself. He needs nothing. You know, people say that, oh, God created the universe and made man to have fellowship. Brother Kevin, do you think the Lord could have done better than you and me for fellowship? I humbly say that because Brother Kevin has a good sense of humor and he knows what I'm saying. God could have done a whole lot better if he needed fellowship. Did he need fellowship? No, God didn't need anything. And to say that he created us because he had fellowship kind of makes us say, yeah, I'm, I'm important. No, I don't think I'm too important that way. So, Abraham's, in Abraham's salvation, this is point number three, in Abraham's salvation, you are going to see things revealed that you won't even find sometimes in the New Testament. There's going to be some things that you can break out and see in here that you're not going to see in other places. When It really is a fascinating thing because He's the only man that tells you anything about salvation in the Old Testament, and yet what he tells you is a lot. It's really quite a bit. So, the first thing we can tell you, and we can start at point number B, is that Abram illustrates that God selects unsaved people apart from any human merit or any works that they've done. Now, we know that to be true, don't we? Well, it shows it back here. They, they understood this in the Old Testament because... If you go to Genesis chapter 11, now I'm not going to badmouth Abram, but I'm going to just tell you what Scripture says. If it sounds like I'm picking on please, I do not. I like what Courtney said. I don't preach against things. I preach in favor of things. I don't condemn or terror. I'm not interested in, in casting mud or throwing stones at anybody because people could throw them at me and I would be a much bigger target and I'd be more deserving. If you go to, uh, to Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, and down through... 
the twelfth chapter in the first verse, we'll see something important. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan. What? They're going, what is he doing here? Isn't this what God told? Let's read on. Very interesting. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto land I will show thee. We'll stop there. Did you notice something? Verse 1 of the twelfth chapter, The Lord had said, Prior to this time. Prior. That's why when you go back to 1131, you see that Terah took the, took the incentive. Not Abram. What are we saying? Abram didn't show much of interest. It, it, you look at it and it says, God had spoken to Abraham prior to the events in Genesis 12. And it must be, it must be in time before Genesis 1131. Otherwise, we would have no idea why Terah acted. Why did Terah decide to go? Why did he go of all places to Ur? Why was he headed to Canaan? Now, he did stop off, but why was he headed there? Why did he leave Ur of the Chaldees? He lived there all his life. What was his reason? Well, if you didn't see that had said, you see how much, how much power there is in a single word? That's a good translation because in the Hebrew you have completed action, which in this case means it's past tense. God had said that, Sometime prior to the events, because 1131 through 121, there's not a chapter division there. So that's another place where chapter divisions kind of throw you a curveball. By seeing a chapter division, it's like you're starting a new subject. No, no, no. We're continuing what was just started a couple of verses before. So what we're saying then is if anybody had faith, if anybody showed any faith at all at this point, who was it? Was it Abram? No. It was Terah. Now, he didn't do very well with it because he never fulfilled, he didn't fulfill the conditions of promise. So on page 3, he did respond, but he failed to do so because he wasn't supposed to go with his son. Remember what it said in 12.1? God had said, go leave your father's house, among other things, and your family, which uh, also means, well, Terah also took Lot when God told Abram to leave his kindred behind. Terah did not go to Canaan, but stopped at Haran. So I can't say that I saw a whole lot of faith in Abram, can you? Let's be honest, we're not gainsaying Abram. We're simply saying this is what the Bible said. This man shows that God saved this man apart from any merit. I think sometimes people do such injustice to the people in the Bible and the Scripture itself when they take these men and they put them up here and say, these were great godly men. Were they great godly men? Well, you should read the story of Isaac and you should read Jacob and Esau and read the, read the godly way that, that, uh, that uh, Jacob treated his brother Esau. It was a godly thing. He tricked him out of his stew. He pretended to be him to get his blessing. Oh, he was a godly man. Oh, boy. If that's godliness, then I'll tell you, Pastor, you and I and most of us here, we must be shining above everything else because those are, those, and they do the same with Abraham. Abraham was just a man had we lived there at the time, you would have seen absolutely nothing different about Abraham than anyone else. In fact, he seemed like he was a little bit of a coward. Do you remember that he twice, twice, he said about his wife, she's my sister, to save his own skin? Now, I'll tell you what, guys. I've never, never 
thought that such a thing made any sense. How in the world would you, is any, any of you three men that are here, would ever, any of you say, oh, that, she's my sister to save your own skin? I don't think any of you would do it. I don't think any of you would do it. If you, if you say you would, you just better be careful when you go home what's going to happen to you when you get there. <laughs> your wife may have something to say about this. So, point, yes? Does that qualify? I, I don't know. That's getting close. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, see, now at least he did the right thing. He said, that's my wife. He didn't say, that's my sister. That's a, I'll have to remember that one. That's a good story. Huh. Wow. <laughs> no, that was worth it. That's worth it. Uh, you, you have to pardon me. I've always been a, a fan of humor. I was the... Uh, the baby of the family, and of all people to get a, a spiritual gift, a teacher, a pastor, teacher, I am the most unlikely person in the world. I was the one in the, sitting in the back who was making all the smart aleck remarks. <laughs> right after we got saved, was, I was in Sunday school one time, and I had just been saved a short time, and the Sunday school teacher said, well, do you, does anyone remember what Zacchaeus said when Jesus said, come down, Zacchaeus? I piped up. He fell out of the tree. <laughs> I started off that way, so... But a little humor doesn't hurt. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it under control. We, we don't want too much. But so we say point number two, Abram had no works or merit which would commend him to God. Because you'll notice, Abraham did not show any evidence of faith because he didn't act upon Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God made him a promise. He said, I'll make you a great nation. You can read that. And did he do anything? Well, the only thing that he did was he told his father. And the reason we say that he told his father is the only way Terah could have known about the promise was if Abram told him. Abraham, Abram was one that God spoke to, not to Terah. So the only way Terah could have possibly known is if his son told him. So what did his son do? He said, what do I do, Daddy? Wait a minute, this guy's grown up by this point. He's a grown, he's a grown man. He went to his father. I don't know whether that's what it was. So I said, point D, if anyone could be credited with merit in any way, it would be Terah. He's the only one that had any merit. And Abram said something interesting about him, too. Uh, I didn't put this in your notes, but this is something that I probably should have stuck in there because Abram actually makes an admission. You know, Abram was, uh, as he went on in life, he did the greatest act of faith in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22 when he was ready to offer up his son. I mean, that is... Anything that we might think ill of the man, when you, see, when you see he goes up on the mountain and the New Testament commentary tells us that he assumed that God would raise him from the dead. Now that's faith like you've never seen. That, that man, he came through in the end. But he did say something else too. He was, uh, as he goes on, he gets a little bit better. Uh, he's, he becomes a slightly better scoundrel. But in the 20th chapter, he's just, the second time he's offered his wife up as a sister. And, you know, to save his own skin, and he gets reproved by, actually the man was, by his lineage, was a Philistine. Philistine. Later on, those Philistines were not the friends of Israel, were they? <laughs> no, not, the, not at all. He was rebuked by a, Phil, a Philistine. 
but it says in here, in verse 13, he's talking to him. Well, let's begin at verse 11. Verse 10, we'll do that. And Bimelech said unto Abram, What saw you that you have done this thing? In other words, you said that this was your sister. He said, what, do you, what saw you that you did this? And Abram said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my, for my wife's sake. And indeed, she is my sister. She's a daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Oh, so there was some kind of a half-truth to it. The half-truth is what? Thank you. It's a lie. Now, notice what he says. It came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Do you see it? When God caused me to wander. That's, by the way, that's a hifil. That's a hifil, to wander. It's interesting. that It's a form of the verb. It's translated correctly. God caused me to wander. It's a form of the verb to wander. But it's in a form that says, God made me do it. It emphasizes God made him wander. His dad died. And so it made him wonder. He just wandered off on his own. In other words, he's admitting here that he didn't go. If you think, if you think there's any question that he actually had faith when he went there, look what it says here. It came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house. God caused him to wander. He didn't go voluntarily. God made him go. So Abraham admits it himself. So if anybody thinks that Abraham went by faith in Genesis 12... Just bring them over here to Genesis 20, verse 13, and show them. You should write that in your notes, because that's something that you should remember. You should remember Genesis 20, verse 13. It's a good translation. It picked up the uniqueness, and there's the beauty of the Hebrew language. God caused him. It puts an emphasis on it. God made it happen. And it tells you that Abraham didn't go willingly. God made him go. Interesting. Interesting. And by the way, that same, same type of statement is made in the book of Judges, when one judge tells the people of Israel, God caused you to leave Egypt, they didn't really want to go either. Very interesting commentary. Yes, I'm selling tickets for the Hebrew class on Saturday morning. <laughs> it's a fun class, though. So, Abram had no nothing to, to in any way show any merit or any favor or anything that he had about him. Now, Abram's, this is point number C on page three. Abram's salvation illustrates how God prepares individuals to make them willing to listen. God prepared Abraham by the capture and rescue of Lot in Genesis 14. And this is fun. This is fun. There's a lot of things in here. And uh, in footnote number three is one I have to call your attention to. I, I, I've taught this before, and I love teaching this subject here. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to teach about the Rephaim and the Nephilim. These are a major, major, major part of the trouble that Israel had in the Old Testament. When Israel spoke, and before we get into this, we're going to have to stop here, so I, I want to do something. I want you to go over to Numbers chapter 13 for just a moment. These individuals were used in two different ways, the Rephaim, Nephilim. They were used before the flood to contaminate the human birth line because there were only eight people left that were not contaminated, the ones that went on the ark, and they were the ones that weren't. But after the flood, Satan was permitted to bring them back, and he couldn't use them the same way, but he came up with an interesting plan that was almost as effective. If you look at Numbers chapter 13, now... 
let's see, the beginning, it goes back to verse 25, and we won't read from there, but the, this, the spies returned. There were 12 spies sent. I think most of us know this story. And they spied out the land for 40 days. It says in verse 25, and they came back. And look what they said in verse 27. And they told him and said, now this is the spies, we came into the land whither you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people are strong that dwell in land. The cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the, the children of Anak there. Now, we're going to find out later. The Anak, or the Anakim as they're known, were a particular group of Rephaim, these giants, that were known for their battle prowess. Because it says in, in Deuteronomy, it says, who can stand before the Anakim? Who can stand before them? They were, they were in the land. So, it says, so now he says, we saw the children of Anak there, the Am- the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites, the Amorites, dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea. And Caleb, Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for well, uh, we are well able to overcome it. But the men who went with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched out under the children of Israel, and said, The land which we have gone to search is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants. Now, this is a Hebrew word, Rephaim. It's a particular class of individuals, and this is a fascinating study. If you have Esau, you can check it out. You can see it. There's a great deal said about these men. They were, they were well, they're actually not men. They're, they're half. They're, they're a hybrid. They're part human, part, part something else. And they're not, they're not even going to figure in the program, in God's program of the end times. <laughs> but he said, and we saw this, the, the giants, the Rephaim, the sons of Anak, which came, come of the Rephaim. And we were as grasshoppers, in, in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. Now, there's all kinds of records, there's all kinds of information. And I had a map that I printed out for one class that I was teaching at Woodburn and showing the place where they found human, humanoid skeletons and so forth. In this country alone, they found seven, eight, nine, ten-foot-tall humanoid type of skeletons buried. And you know what they've done with them? They've hide them. They hide them. I have an, I have an article on a computer at home where it says that the Smithsonian Institute, they, they would send these things to Smithsonian, and somebody caught one of the paleontologists breaking the skulls and destroying them. You know why? Because it didn't fit evolution. It didn't fit the evolutionary scheme. All oh, these people were so big, they didn't fit, so they didn't want anything to do with it. That's really odd that they would do that. I thought, they thought, sci- I thought science was honest. I thought they wanted to know the truth. I thought they wanted knowledge. Well, yeah, when it fits their, fits their perception. Well, since I, since I alluded to it, the ninth chapter does talk about, of Deuteronomy, does talk about these individuals. Now, they said, particularly, the Anakim are part of the Rephaim. They're known as sons of Anak or Anakim, which is plural of Anak. Uh, one of the things that's funny is when you see in the Bible, Ref, cherubims, that's a, that's, on, that, that's a double, that's a plural of a plural, because the Hebrew would be cherub, and the plural of cherub is cherubim. Now, why did they put an S on it? Cherubims. <laughs> uh, poor Dale Spurbeck, when he would read that, it would always frustrate him. So I used to tease him about the cherubims. <laughs> Let's see. 
verse 2 of, of, of the ninth chapter of Deuteronomy. Here's what I was saying about this, verse 1 and verse 2. Moses, of course, is going to pass off the scene, and he says something. Hear, O Israel, you are to pass over the Jordan this day to go in to possess the nations greater and mightier than thyself. See, that, was what, that part, what the spies said, was true, except that they overlooked the fact that God was going to be the one that would fight for them. Of cities great and fenced and walled up to the heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you've heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Isn't it interesting? How did those giants get in the promised land in the very place where Israel was going to come in? Do you see somebody called Satan back there in the Old Testament? He's, he's a lot more active than we ever realize. By just reading this, you say, well, why would they be there? Well, if you go back and remember, they tried to pollute the human bloodline. Well, who would be interested in keeping the human bloodline corrupt? Well, Satan would have been interested because the Savior couldn't have come. He wouldn't have been fully human. He'd have been a hybrid. He would have been a hybrid. Yeah. Interesting. He would have been a hybrid. Well, there's, there's a lot more we could say about the Anakim. And uh, they're not even going to be resurrected. They're not even going to be resurrected in the final judgment, which is really interesting. Now, that is found over in Isaiah. And I'm, I'm going to... We're, we're done, but this is information that's free. But I, I don't want to teach the whole class on, on that. But I did do that. And uh, it is definitely a subject that is worth knowing a little bit about. And in Isaiah 26, there's a statement made. Now, you don't see it in English, and I wish that they had translated it differently. But this is something that you might want to write in your notes because these giants, these Rephaim, as they're known, they're also called twice Nephilim, but they're also known by the name Rephaim more commonly. They're not going to be resurrected, and Isaiah tells you that, and it's very interesting the way he says it. Isaiah 26, beginning at verse 13. O Lord, our, o Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us. Now, other lords, other masters, whoever this is, is pretty, pretty powerful. They had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead, they shall not live. They are Rephaim, they shall not rise. Therefore you visited and destroyed them. They're dead, they shall not live, they're deceased. That's the Hebrew word for Rephaim. And if you look at, actually I think it's a singular, Pastor, if you're looking at the Esau, you can see it's Rapha. They're Rephaim. They shall not rise. Well, they're not going to rise. Well, I thought every human being was going to be resurrected at the great white throne, didn't you? Well, if these are not going to be resurrected, then are they fully human? No. Sons of God took flesh daughters of men, offspring that were huge, gigantic men. Talk about farm equipment. They had, and that, they, those men were bigger. People were farmers. How would it be to have a 14-foot-tall son-in-law? You wouldn't have to have oxen to plow the fields. Hey, son, go on out there. It's just pull it behind him. One of them was uh, later, and, and this, is, this is fun. I'll tell you this as we close. There was one that you know of, he was a small one, though. He's only nine foot six. Goliath. Goliath of Gath, he had a coat of mail. That, a coat of mail, now a coat of mail just went down basically over your waist. 
And it says the weight was 5,000 shekels of, of copper, I think. And a little computation, they know what a shekel is. You know what his, you know what his coat of mail weighed? Goliath, when he went out to fight, he had a coat of mail that weighed 153 pounds. A coat of mail, 153 pounds. Now, I dare say if any of us, even us men that are, even if Courtney was here, a young, strong guy, I think if we put a 153-pound coat on him, I don't think he'd be running out to meet somebody. That was what, now, now you understand when it says, who can stand before the Anakim? If one of their late descendants could wear 153 pound, and by the way, his spear was something on the order of about 20 feet long. There's a lot that could be said. It's, it's a fun subject. But, uh, so these are going to play, oddly enough, these are going to play a part in Abraham's salvation, which is really interesting. I, I'm, I'm not sure why God did what he did the way he did it with him, but it sure makes a point that God prepared this man and this man must have been awfully stubborn if God had to bring the Rephaim to the picture to get him to listen. But that's what happened. We'll come back to that next week. And so we're seeing some elements of salvation, but we've already seen in Abraham what we know today to be true. God doesn't save someone because they have merit. You know, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Remember what then that quiz we had? We were dead. Abraham was dead in trespasses and sins when God came to him. He didn't offer God anything. God didn't need one thing for him. God could have chosen anybody. But he chose a man. No merit. He just chose a man. Now, I'm thankful today, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I just should remind myself, you, you didn't offer God anything. You still don't offer God anything. Everything you and I do today, how do we do it? It's by grace. We're given a spiritual gift. Oh, Pastor, you earned your spiritual gift, didn't you? Or did you buy it at Kmart? No, it was given. So we should remember, we're no better. We were saved by grace. We did not deserve anything. Thank God he chose us. Why? I don't know, but I'm just thankful. I'm not going to question. I'm just thankful he did. I don't want him to change his mind about that. <laughs> no, that's lighthearted.